Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I'm your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we are going to be talking with an incredibly inspiring individual who is helping increase awareness among the legal profession and in our communities about the very real struggles of addiction and recovery. It is my honor to be welcoming Brian Cuban to the show. Brian is a Dallas-based attorney, author, and addiction recovery advocate. He is also the younger brother of Dallas Mavericks owner and entrepreneur, Mark Cuban. Brian is a graduate of Penn State University and the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He has been in long-term recovery from alcohol, cocaine, and eating disorders since April 2007. His first book, Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder, chronicles his firsthand experiences living with and recovering from 27 years of eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder. Brian's most recent best-selling book, The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption, is an unflinching look back at how addiction and other mental health issues destroyed his career as a once successful lawyer and how he and others in the profession redefined their lives in recovery and found redemption. Brian has spoken at colleges, universities, conferences, nonprofit, and legal events across the United States and Canada. Brian has appeared on prestigious talk shows such as The Katie Couric Show, as well as numerous media outlets across the country. He also writes extensively on these subjects. His columns have appeared and he has been quoted on these topics on CNN.com, FoxNews.com, The Huffington Post, Above the Law, The New York Times, and in online and print newspapers around the world. It is my pleasure to welcome Brian Cuban to the show. Thanks so much for joining us, Brian. Thanks for having me on. So Brian, you have a very compelling personal story, and I'm so honored to have you on the show to talk about addiction and recovery, which are such incredibly important topics, especially today. Why don't you start with sharing with our listeners your personal and professional background? Well, I am a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Uh, I'm licensed to practice in the state of Texas. I passed the Pennsylvania bar as well, but I am inactive there. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the middle of three boys. A lot of people know my older brother, Mark, uh, Shark Tank and the Mavs and all that stuff. And I have a younger brother, Jeff. And I've lived in Dallas since I graduated from law school since I lived here over 30 years since 1986. I am in recovery from two eating disorders, uh, problem drinking, cocaine addiction, and I deal with clinical depression. My sobriety date is coming up in two days, April 8th. I will have 12 years. Congratulations. Thank you. I am, uh, I'm, I'm married. I've been married for two and a half years now, although we dated for a decade before that. And my wife uh, actually was with me for the quote-unquote rock bottom and stood by me. That's terrific. So as we talk about uh, your addictions and your recovery, 
it would really be helpful for us to set the context by giving our listeners just a few statistics regarding addiction in the legal profession as well as in the community at large. Do you have some statistics that you can share with us? Absolutely. If we want to look at the community at large, there was a recent study, and when I say recent, within the last year and a half, that found that I think it was 115 to 12% of people in the United States could be classified as problem drinkers somewhere on the problem drinking scale. They phrased it as quote unquote alcoholics, but we have to remember that alcoholic is not a medical term, it's a term of art. So whether someone is a light problem drinker or a heavy problem drinker, all of that was classified as alcoholic. We compared that to the, the Betty Ford Hazelton American Bar Association study that found that about 20 to 21% of licensed attorneys who responded to the study were problem drinkers. Wow. If you're a millennial, if you're of the millennial demographic, age demographic, it goes to over 30%. So those are some pretty staggering statistics. And you put it in context of the article I read, which called problem drinking a crisis in this country. That was 11 and a half, 12%. Wow. We're... 20%, 21%, 30% and higher, depending on the demographic. So if that's a crisis, what's the legal profession? And it's not only that, we have high rates of depression, anxiety. We are, I believe, fourth highest professional of professionals, not all occupations of professionals, in suicide. We are number one in problem drinking. So we are a profession in crisis when it comes to mental health and how we approach it. So what do you think are some of the driving forces with respect to those numbers going up significantly in our profession? A lot of people, I think, chalk it up to stress. What is your insight into that? Well, stress is certainly a factor. The type of person who goes into the legal profession is a factor. We tend to be type A-driven personalities. Uh, Secondary trauma is a factor. People in the family law profession and other professions who internalize all of the awful things they see every day, wearing our clients' pain. So there are many different things. And of course, with the millennial demographic, it's a much different legal environment. We had the, uh, what was it, 2008? We had the recession of 2008, the legal recession as well. Am I getting that date, date about right? Yes, you are. So we have that, and we have astronomical school loans as compared to employment rates and cost of living that weren't nearly as much of a factor as when I graduated the University of Pittsburgh School of Law on $2,500 a year tuition. So why do you think the numbers go up significantly with the millennials? I think that student loans are cited as a major factor, the ability to pay off student loans. The partnerships and law firms are not defined the same way. The partnership tracks that we have in firms aren't the way they used to be in terms of equity and things like that. So there are all kinds of stressors related to how the law is currently practiced that really was not the case when I was practicing law. Those are a couple different reasons, possible reasons. And when I talk about reasons, we have to remember there is a difference between cause and correlation. Reasons aren't causes. Reasons are just things that play into it. Right. So looking at your personal story, you talk very openly about your personal struggles with addiction as well as your eating disorders. When do you first remember them being a part of your life? And what do you think the triggers were 
And how did you struggle to cope with your addictions and eating disorders over the years? As far as alcohol, I had been drinking as early as 15 years old, not something that was, I would call myself an alcoholic, but high school kids drink. Right. So, but it really became a problem when I entered Penn State University, along with my eating disorders. As a freshman at Penn State, I became anorexic, and this was in 1979. So that was four years before Karen Carpenter, the singer, passed away. And for those who don't know, Karen Carpenter was a wonderful internationally known singer who died from complications related to anorexia at a time when no one was talking about eating disorders and brought it into the pre-digital national spotlight that kind of cemented it as a stereotype that only women got eating disorders, only females got eating disorders. So this was four years before that. At a time, you can't even say there was a stigma to having an eating disorder because for there to be a stigma, there needs to be a national discussion and people talking about it, and there was none. Right. And I, I remember that vividly. I, I, was, I was pretty young when Karen Carpenter died, but I just remember the emotion felt by so many people just knowing that she was, that she was struggling. And when she ultimately passed away, it was just so incredibly sad. Yes. And, and she was kind of the historical linchpin for eating disorder awareness, her passing. I, I transitioned into bulimia later that year, go from going from my freshman and my sophomore year, bulimia is binging and purging. And then by the time I was 21 years old at Penn State, I was a full-blown quote-unquote alcoholic, the medical term being alcohol use disorder. I was drinking pretty much every night. I was going to class drunk. I was missing class. I was going to class hungover. I was buying alcohol at our state stores in Pennsylvania, bottles of tequila, putting it in my boot and getting drunk just to go out to get drunk, to deaden a lot of pain that stemmed from childhood. And then when I was 20, uh, let's see, 1987, I was 26, I discovered cocaine, instantly became psychologically addicted, would later become physically dependent. And so all of those things really revolved around a core a core of a little boy who did not love himself a little boy who was bullied a little boy who was fat shamed a little boy who was and then a teenage boy who never felt loved even though he was loved i was very shy very withdrawn and i wore anything negative said to me like a skin tight suit and unfortunately christina i always also had a difficult relationship with my mother mm-hmm. i'm going to tell the your audience a little bit about this but i want to make it clear to your audience that i do not blame my mother or my parents for any of the mental health struggles i went through parents do not cause eating disorders parents do not cause addiction there is a difference between cause and correlation as you know right but a lot of things that go on in the home at a young age can correlate with mental health struggles later in life. It doesn't happen for everyone, but it was kind of a perfect storm for me. My mother would come home from selling real estate back in the 70s, and she would see me eating Chef Boyardee ravioli out of the can. I would come home from school, and she would say, Brian, if you keep eating like that, you're going to be a fat pig. These were the things her mother said to her. These were the things my great-grandmother said to my grandmother. Fat shaming in families is often handed down, passed down generationally. This wasn't my mom's fault. These were the tools she was given as a young mother in the 70s to deal with her mental health struggles of what she had. My grandmother was bipolar. There was a very mentally and verbally abusive relationship between them. 
And so when I came home with bad grades, as her mother said to her, my mom would call me a dumb bunny. And as you might imagine, not understanding psychology 101, I grew very depressed and at hearing these things. And I began to eat more Chef Boyardee ravioli and I got heavier and I got heavier. And it so often happens in school and grade school and high school and college and law school, I see it. When people start to change for what other kids perceive in the negative, the bullying started. The fat teasing, the fat taunting, the fat shaming. And it all culminated. I remember, Christine, one day you asked for kind of bright line moments. Mm -hmm. My brother Mark had given me a pair of shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. Those were super cool back in the day. In the 70s, (laughs) yes. this This was 75 or 76. This was the era of Saturday Night Fever. John Travolta. And leisure and, suits, right? And, that's right. And the polyester <laughs> disco suits. It was, it was the disco rage going on about then. And so my brother Mark was into all that. Me, not so much. But I love my brother. And he came home one day, came into my bedroom and said, Bri, that's what he calls me today. Still, Bri, you want these pants? And they were these shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, I want them. I, my brother gave them to me. I love my brother. He's a symbol of his love to me. And I wore those shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants to school all the time. The problem was, Christina, that they fit Mark okay. I was a heavy kid. Mm-hmm. I had to jump up and down. You, know, you had to jump up and down to get them on, spray them with water. My butt looked like 15 cats in a bag back there, but I didn't care oh because my brother gave them to me. And I wore them, and of course, kids made fun of them. And I developed a very self-deprecating sense of humor to put up a brick wall around how much the taunts at school and at home hurt me. I became very self-deprecating, kind of a sad clown, making jokes about myself. When kids tease me, I would say, yeah, I'm headed to Sears right now. You need to go get a bra for your man boobs, Cuban. I'm headed to Sears right now. Mm-hmm. Back when Sears was a big thing back then. Right. Not yeah, so I much anymore. <laughs> yeah, I remember so those anymore. days, yeah. Yes, back when we got a catalog. But it hurt. And the self-deprecation must want my way of protecting myself from how much it hurt, even though it did. It all came to a head one day when I was walking home with a few of these kids who were bullies, but they were also popular kids and kids I knew, kids who were going to the prom, kids who were getting their first kiss, holding hands, going to the after-school football parties, all the things I wanted so badly, and all the things I associated with self-acceptance peer group acceptance and peer group acceptance. They start making fun of the pants about a mile from my house. It was a mile walk from, my, from the school to my home. And the next thing I knew, Christina, they start pulling at the pants and they physically assaulted me and they tore those pants off me. Oh God, those shiny that's good, Those shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. They tore them into shreds, threw them out in the street, walked on like they had done the funniest thing ever, down to my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities my Keds sock my kids' tennis shoes and my tube socks, my Pittsburgh Pirates baseball cap because I was a Pirates fan. This is Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And I went out in the street and I picked up the shreds and I covered my privates and waddled on home. People gawked. No one stopped. I got home, Christina. I went down into our basement. Do they have basements in Chicago? They actually do. Yeah. Unless, I mean, yeah, mo- yeah most houses do have basements. So you understand basements. It is a foreign language here in Texas. I'm sure it is. (laughs) I went down into our basement. And at that time, a lot of houses had what was known as incinerators. Mm -hmm. 
They burned at a very high heat. You put trash in there and it burned it to ashes and you put the ashes out. I walked down there. No one was home, a silent house. And I quietly just threw those shreds, opened that steel door, that steel plate door heavy. And I threw those shreds into the burning flame, hoping to incinerate my shame and incinerate any memory of what had been done to me and how I felt about myself, hoping not my brother or anyone would ever bring it up again. But of course, it doesn't work that way. And I remember right around then, beginning to see my reflection in the mirror and seeing something different than I used to see. I saw a quote unquote fat pig, this huge stomach, who was never going to be loved, who was never going to get married, who was never going to have a girlfriend, wouldn't be loved by his mother, who did love him dearly. She struggled with her own mental health issues at that time. Wouldn't be loved by his brother, Mark, when he found out what had happened to those pants, or his father. And that is when I started to really see myself in a different way, just as this monster. So I was very happy when high school ended, and I went on to Penn State University. I remember my father driving me up to Penn State University, and it was the first day of class. The freshman, it was the first day coming in, not the first day of class. I was living in a dorm, and it was going to be a whole new Brian. I was going to make new friends. Nobody knew about what happened in Pittsburgh. Nobody knew about what happened in my high school. It was going to be, I was going to get a girlfriend. Everything was going to be great. And I remember as my father helped me unpack, he drove me up there. I was staring out this long rectangular window on this beautiful, crisp fall, cool day at Penn State. Kids were out in the parking lot with their parents and other kids. And I made eye contact with this curly brown haired girl. I started sweating, Christina. I imagined my entire life with this girl in a space of 15 seconds. We're going to date. We're going to get married. We're going to have two and one half children. It wasn't a smile. It was a smirk. She turned to her two friends. She looked back at me. She cupped her hand over her mouth to create that mini little megaphone like you see Mm -hmm. sometimes, right? Calling out to someone, hey, come back. And she yelled, ugly, ugly. That's awful. That's awful. I'm not the first kid to have awful things said to him. I'm not the first kid to be called ugly. Other kids may respond how their personalities program them and their genetics program them to respond in their upbringing. Some might, one kid might have said, yeah, whatever, and flip, flipped her off, right? Another kid might have said ugly back. Another kid might have, whatever. I was somebody who already felt ugly. And I was somebody who was already broken. And I remember thinking at that time that, My entire life was out of control, completely out of control. And what did you do? Well, food. I had control over food. I didn't want to eat more because I associated that with bullying in my mother. So I began to restrict my food intake in 1979. My path to acceptance and love, peer group acceptance, was to lose weight. I decided that if I got thin, I would be loved and I would love myself. So in that moment with that girl, that's what you decided to do. Well, let's, I want to be careful about that because again, there is no one cause. Right. I don't blame that girl. If it wasn't this, it would have been that. I was just waiting to be triggered into an eating disorder. 
And so for every pound I lost, I began weighing myself obsessively at the nurse's office of the college. And for every pound I lost, I felt okay for that moment. I weighed myself, oh wow, I've lost weight. When I go back out into the student population, people are gonna like me. When I go to the Penn State football game, people are gonna like me. But of course it doesn't work that way. And it didn't change how I felt about myself because when that euphoria wore off, I still felt, saw that fat pig in the mirror. And later that same year, I transitioned to binging and purging. And every time I binged and purged, for about 10 seconds, 15 seconds, this calmness swept into my stomach and I felt at peace with myself. But then that calmness swept out of my stomach and into sweeping in like a cyclone to fill it up was the shame of engaging in this act that I didn't understand. I didn't know what binging and purging was. I didn't know what bulimia was. Bulimia had only been a clinical diagnosis since 1976. Now we're moving into 1980. And, and, and again, it's something that was often really identified more with girls and women than with men. That's right. That's right. Even though today we know that about 25% of all those with eating disorders or male. It's funny when I talk about my eating disorders, whether it's to a bar association, a, at a law firm, or a general eating disorder recovery event, I'll raise not so much the eating disorder events, but especially with the, in the legal profession, I'll ask for a show, of my hand, a show of hands of people who have never seen a guy in person talk about being in recovery from an eating disorder. At least 75% of the hands in the room will go up. So it's that, there's that kind of stigma and shame around it that pe- there just aren't that many people talking about it openly. Did anybody know what was going on? Did you confide in anybody? Did anybody suspect that this was going on and try to help you at this, at, at this point? No, the only people around me were other students. They didn't know what eating disorders were. I wasn't going to binge and purge in front of them. I did what people do. I would go into a, the public... Uh, Back then, my first year at Penn State, it was we had community bathrooms in the dorms. I would go in there and I would go into the stall and just keep flushing the toilet while I, while I binged and purged so no one could hear. A, a standard camouflaging technique for anyone who's been through it. And so, no, there was, who was I? Well, I, you can't, there's nothing to tell if I don't understand what I'm going through, right? And all I know is that it's shameful. Guys don't stick their fingers down their throat. Guys just don't do that. And so, That is how I got through every day at Penn State University, my freshman moving into my sophomore year. I transitioned into exercise bulimia as well, which is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. What does that look like, Brian? So that our, just so our listeners understand and don't have, you know, preconceived notions without knowing what it really is. What it really is, is getting obsessed with how many calories you take in a day and making sure that you exercise in excess of that calorie intake. That is basically what exercise bulimia is. I was running 20 miles a day, starting out running 10, but working my way up, running 20 miles a day. And I wasn't counting calories back then, but I was also restricting my food intake pretty significantly. So I knew what was going on and I knew by the loss in pounds that it was working. In my mind, I called it working. What it was really doing was being very destructive to my body. How long were you 
actively in the state of exercise bulimia. I know that these disorders and addictions that you're always recovering, but how long, I mean, how long were you? 27 years. 27 years. 27 years. And what did that look like as time went on? Did it change at all or was it running or did you shift to different types of activities? It was running. It, it was it was camouflaging it as socially acceptable behaviors. I became a marathon runner. So I could tell myself that I was achieving goals when in reality, the purpose of running marathons was to fuel my exercise bulimia. That doesn't mean everyone who runs marathons is exercise bulimic resonating eating disorder. It was my pathology. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, it does make sense. And you were also drinking as well during this time too, correct? Yes, I transitioned into drinking as well. I began drinking excessively at Penn State and became a quote-unquote alcoholic, uh, getting drunk quite often, going to class drunk and hungover, as I stated previously. So the scorecard at that time is um, traditionally bulimic, I'm exercise bulimic, and I'm drinking excessively and also binge drinking. I was so dehydrated some mornings and some evenings, Christina, that it was difficult for me to get out of bed. That's how much stress I put on my body. And you were 19, 20, 21 years old. That's right. I was 19, moving into my 20th year, then my 21st year. But I was able to graduate from Penn State. And that's not a badge of honor. That was really, I was able, because of just who I was, to take the path of least resistance. I had a relatively easy major. I was a uh, criminal justice major. I wanted to be a police officer at that time. That would have worked out well. I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room training out the Manitol for the cocaine, let me tell you. But I also had the ability to pull it together the night before an exam and give back the information in short-term memory the next day and get good grades. So I'm sitting in the placement office, and now it's 1982, I believe, and I'm looking through the police officer jobs in the placement office of my major, and there were two guys next to me, and they're talking about taking the LSATs. I'm listening. They were both talking about going to Pitt Law. I knew them relatively well and that they were both from Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And all the bells start going off in my head. I was a genius now. I should go to law school. Not because I wanted to be a lawyer. Not because I wanted to change the world. Not because I wanted to help people. Not because I wanted to make money. I should go to law school because I can binge and purge. I can run 20 miles a day, I can drink, I can engage in the exact same survival behaviors day to day that got me through four years at Penn State for three more years. That is why I went to law school. Was it just the fact that it was another form of school? It was the fact that I didn't have to go out in the real world and show the ugliness that I saw inside me. I didn't have to grow up. I didn't have to answer to anyone. I could, I could live with the shame just like and camouflage it from everyone like I did at Penn State at Pitt Law, like I did when I would flush the toilet binging and purging. It was camouflage. Going to Pitt Law was camouflage of the behaviors I was engaging in. Why not? I didn't know any lawyers. I didn't want to be a lawyer. No one in my family was a lawyer. I'm a first-generation lawyer in our family. I had no concept of what it meant to be a lawyer. 
Nobody was pressuring me to be a lawyer, not my family, not my parents. They were shocked as hell when I told them I was going to law school. But it made perfect sense to me. So I took the LSATs and I did okay, not great, but I did well enough to get in pit law. I was in state. And now I am a 1L. And what did it, Lee, I was going to ask you, and how did, how did that look for you? How did law school, particularly your first year, look? Let's talk about my first day, 1L orientation. I took the bus from my house in the South Hills, my parents' house. I got off in front of the law school. I walked to the door. I stood there. I looked inside. And all of these kids waiting to go into the classroom, not for classes, for 1L orientation. They're going to break everyone into your class groups and things like that. You know how that is. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking around and people are getting acquainted, people who clearly know each other, professors milling about, adults, I assume they were professors. It was basically a replay of that scene from Penn State, looking out that window in my dormitory. I think I even saw that curly brown haired girl standing in the back. Wow. Not really. No, but figuratively. But fig- metaphorically, everyone in that room, every female in that room was that curly brown haired girl. Every guy in that room were the high school bullies looking directly at me, not worried about their own stuff like they, like they all really were, right? All scared and worried about the future wondering what was in store for them. They were all looking at me in my mind and saying, this is a fat pig and a dumb bunny and he will never be accepted by us. And I realized right there that I had made the perfect decision to go to pit law because everything was going to be exactly as it was. Kind of a weird logic, isn't it? But it is a weird logic that I have seen play out in so many different ways by law students, by lawyers, in justifying holding in their pain and holding in their issues and not asking for help. So what did the next three years look like for you? Here's what the next three years look like. I did my moot court drunk. I was rather run than go to class. I would go to class drunk. I would go to class hungover. Sound familiar? I would buy alcohol to get drunk, to go out and get drunker thinking the drunker I got, the easier it would be to socialize. This was my first year in law school. I had still never even held a girl's hand in a romantic way, never kissed a girl, never asked a girl on a date because I felt so ugly. And so the law school experience began to mirror the Penn State experience, but there are some significant differences. You can't just pull an all-nighter in law school and do well on an exam, right? No, you cannot. I was not a very good law student. I particularly remember one instance in class, and this is a story I tell. I had been out on an all-night drinking bend at a bar and then drinking at my apartment alone. I go to class and I hadn't changed. I smelled. I hadn't showered. My two seatmates next to me were, dude, give us some room here. It was civil procedure. I was sinking as low as I could in my seat. If you ever watched a cartoon where the character just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, that's what I was trying to do so I wouldn't get called on. Just make myself small, insignificant, and unobtrusive. But of course... You got called on, right? (laughs) Mr. Cuban. And it was a jurisdiction problem. Who knows what it was? Maybe Pinoyer v. Neff or something. Is that jurisdiction? I think so, yes. Mr. Cuban, what do you think of this problem on the board back when they used blackboards? Professor, just go on to someone else. I'm not prepared. I didn't have my books. I didn't even bring them from the house. 
Well, Mr. Cuban, when you say you're not prepared, the Socratic method, right? When you say you're not prepared, do you mean you were not prepared to answer this fact scenario or you're just not prepared? Professor, would you please go on to someone else? Pause. Well, Mr. Cuban, when you say, would you please go on to someone else, do you mean, should I just change the fact scenario and we won't have to go on to someone else? Ugh. Oh, boy. I uttered an expletive. I jumped up and I ran out of the classroom. That kind of, that was a microcosm of my three years at Pitt Law. I graduated at the bottom of the class, as you might expect. I really didn't care. I wasn't signing up on the job board. That, they used to have these job blackboards where they would tell you who was inter interviewing up in front of the placement office and you would sign, there was a sign-up sheet. I wasn't signing up for those and no one was asking me. I had no concept of what I would do if I graduated. And when I did graduate at the bottom of my class, I picked up, I took the Pennsylvania bar, which I did pass, and I picked up with $200 to my name. I jumped on a Greyhound bus and I took it to Dallas, Texas, Labor Day, 1986. What made you decide to, to go to Dallas? For the same reasons, I was happy for, to go from Pittsburgh to Penn State. Things were going to be different. My brother Mark had already moved there. My brother Jeff lived there unconditional love. If no one else would love me, I knew my brothers did. And that would save me. So that was why I moved to Dallas, Texas. That's it. Not for a job. And when I got to Dallas, it was like throwing gasoline on a fire. Because my brothers were, the, it was the 19, it was 1986, 1987, they're in their 20s. And see, Mark was in, in his early 30s. They're out going to bars, dating, having a good time. I fit right in. I began drinking more. And then in the summer of 1987, I discovered the one thing that for 15 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, however long that high lasted, I finally looked in the mirror and I loved that person that I saw. And what was that? That was cocaine. After a lifetime of self-hatred, self-loathing, this feeling swept into my stomach that was 10 times more powerful, 100 times more powerful than the feeling I got binging and purging that swept into my stomach before the shame came in. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced in my life, this feeling of self-love. All of a sudden, girls like me. All of a sudden, my mom loved me. All of a sudden, the bullies, I could take those bullies who tore my pants off. They were going to regret the day. I was a new man. That curly brown-haired girl loved me. I was law review. <laughs> revision the revisionist brian high on cocaine wearing my suit in a bar pretending i was something i wasn't my suit that i owned since high school and i had to have that feeling christina again and again and again so you became a cocaine addict i became addicted to cocaine psychologically at first and then i would become physically dependent and cocaine and alcohol took over my life I failed the Texas bar exam twice. The first time I took the Texas bar exam, my study aids were bar review books I borrowed that day. I didn't learn anything from trying that in law school. Three and a half ounces of cocaine, a fifth of Jack Daniels, and a liter of tab. <laughs> yeah, wow. I liked tab back then. And as you might imagine, I failed. And I, and I had no illusions, although when... When the letter came, when we did it, when they did it by letters, do they still give you a letter or is it just computer now? I think it's computer now. Okay. 
Yeah. So back it was then, letters when I took it too, though. I, I remember my father opened my letter for me because I couldn't wait to get home and I knew it was the letter. So he opened it for me. Yes. I, it was a letter I really wasn't waiting for, but I knew it was going to come. And I ripped it open. And it's kind of like when you take peek at the lotto ticket, right? When, when the lotto gets up to $2 billion and they announce the winner, you, you put that ticket on the table and just look at it inch by inch, millimeter by millimeter, put it in putting your eyes there to see if you won. And, and it would have been like winning the lotto for me to have passed that bar exam. And, I, and when I saw I'd failed, I wasn't shocked. And so I couldn't practice law, and I went on to doing different things. Uh, I became a claim adjust, claims adjuster. And I began adjusting claims for a living, working for Travelers Insurance. And then I worked in litigation management for an uh, insurance company called Transport Insurance that did nothing but long-haul trucking insurance. And I enjoyed that, and I took the bar again and failed it. Again, drug and alcohol reasons. The greatest thing about transport insurance was that I had an office door that closed so I could do cocaine on my desk with no one bothering me. But it was a repeat and I failed again. And I finally did pass my third time. And I went out on my own as a Texas licensed attorney who was also addicted to cocaine, who was also an alcoholic, who was also bulimic, exercise bulimic, a Texas licensed attorney who had no concept of recovery, no concept concept of lawyers assistance programs of 12-step. The closest I had ever come to any epiphany on recovery, any self-awareness, was at Penn State when I walked into a hamburger joint, drunk of course, and they had put out this rack of pamphlets, the 12-step groups. Alcoholics Anonymous is the most well-known of the alcohol 12-step groups. And they put out these pamphlets called the 20 questions, and they're geared towards college students. Answer this many questions in the positive and you just and you may have a drinking problem. Do you black out? Yes. Do you miss class? And I'm checking off yes to all these questions mentally. And I thought to myself, I'm just a college student. We all do this. And I threw it in the basket. And that was the last I ever thought about that. That was as close as I'd ever come to it. And I was no closer as a lawyer going through the same issues. And so I went out on my own and I became the classic quote unquote ambulance chaser. And I say that with all deference to the wonderful plaintiff's lawyers and doing wonderful work, helping people that I know around the country. But I became the stereotype. Sometimes stereotypes happen for a reason. That was me. I was taking cases I shouldn't take because I needed money to fund my extracurricular party activities, my drugs. I was not giving my clients their money's worth. Basically, what happens, and I have a hard time bringing lawyers to understand this, when we are with mental health issues, whether it's drugs or alcohol, and our performance declines, and we keep trying to redefine our level of high functioning, what we're really doing is stealing from our client, right? Because the hourly rate at one level is not the same work output at the hourly rate as another level. Right. And so I was engaging in that kind of behavior. It got so bad, I established a ring of chiropractors where they would call me and tell me they had a, one called it a fish, <laughs> mm -hmm. down there, down at the office, and they would tell me to come down. And I would come down with my briefcase with these contingency agreements in the same suit I still own since high school, and shoes 20 years old, and I would sit out there in the lobby, and the chiropractor would come out with, the client, with their patient, Mr. Cuban, what are you doing here? Mr. Cuban's one of our top trial lawyers, never tried a case. <sighs> Mr. Cuban will get you maximum settlement 
I'll cut that. I'll cut my fee. I'll do anything I can to not try a case, including taking nothing if it comes to that. Mm-hmm. It was all BS, but I began to make a living doing that. And obviously, both walking and crossing the ethical line, your readers are going to be asking you, how does this guy not get suspended or get disbarred? Well, it wasn't for a lack of trying. And I say that tongue in cheek, but it is a very real thing that happens to lawyers who wait for consequences to catch up to the problem. And it hadn't completely caught up with me yet in terms of consequences. In 1990, I was coming off my first of three divorces, all failing because of drug and alcohol issues to a large part. And I had gotten hammered and I was high on cocaine at this bar in downtown, downtown Dallas. I'm flying up the highway. State trooper pulls me over. As you always hear, hear about walking distance to my house, do the field sobriety. I'm missing my nose and I'm missing the alphabet. Arrested on, for uh, suspicion of DWI. Taken down to the Sterrett Justice Center with the jail in the basement where the deputy sheriffs run you through the hazing line of booking. And it was a hazing line. At that time, I was also abusing steroids. I was addicted to anabolic steroids and I was a big guy. But I, was, I had the short sleeve shirt on with the muscle shirt rolled up. I was wearing an earring at that time. And I had on these muscle pants. And I'm walking through this line. And the Dallas County deputy sheriffs are just letting me have it. The one deputy sheriff takes, this, takes the booking card. He stares at it. He pulls it up to his face, right at his nose. He looks at it. He looks me in the eye and goes, you're a lawyer. You're a stinking lawyer. You stink. And he gets nose to nose with me, just waiting for me to make contact with him, just letting me have it with verbal abuse. Wow. He goes, do you know you stink? I'm thinking, is this a trick question? Oh, yeah. <laughs> is this a trick question? Wow. And I took it. You have to because there's, I did not want to get taken back to wherever they take you if you I'll let it get to you. And right. I was ashamed enough as it was, not, not to imply that, that bad things happen, but if by saying something, nothing good was going to happen. I knew that right. <laughs> by responding, by retorting. So they throw me in the holding cell, which is people book for, it's all people book for public in talks and driving well intoxicated and things like that. And there are people crying, there are people, there's urine on the floor. It was just awful. There's a payphone in the back, so where you can only make collect calls. So I'm making collect calls to all these people at four in the morning, trying to bail me out. And I finally get one of the guys I was with the night before or earlier that night, and he comes and bails me out. Now it's like nine in the morning when I get home. First call I make is to my father, crying and crying and crying. And he comforts me, not really within his zone of understanding. Uh, My dad doesn't you know, drunk driving, cocaine, and things I held back from him. I never told him until I really began to get sober until that moment, what I was going through. And he comforted me like a father would. He said, it's going to be okay. You'll get through this. The next call was to my brother, my younger brother, said, get a lawyer. It's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Get a good lawyer. And then I, that Monday, I walked into work at the insurance. And, and this was, uh, I talked to my boss, expecting to get fired. All he said was, get a good lawyer. And I got a lawyer. Again, that was it. No one ever said, do you want to get help? Do you need help? No one. 
But they knew, right? But they knew. They knew I had a problem, but and it's not their fault. It is the this was a long time ago. And we were in the early stages of lawyers' assistance programs. Addiction was much more stigmatized then than it is today, and it's still stigmatized. It was really more a mind-your-own-business atmosphere. And I got a lawyer, and I beat it. The state trooper didn't show up for trial. He retired. He retired not long before the trial and moved back to wherever state his, his hometown was, which was in Dallas, where he was stationed at that time, and he decided he wasn't coming. So my lawyer comes out of the DA workroom. He said, I have an early birthday present for you. And he hands me a note of dismissal. And I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. He says, thank them. He was being tongue in cheek. I go in the work, I go to the DA workroom. I open up the door and I said, thank you. They looked at me with death daggers. I didn't know he was kidding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he grabs me by the shoulder and said, Brian, I was kidding. Just go before they change their mind. <laughs> yeah. And so I beat it. And I don't believe in revisionist recovery, but I don't know what uh, would have happened if I didn't beat it, if things would have changed. But I would have had a record. So that wouldn't have helped me. So as we wind down our first segment, um, this is this is a very compelling story. And I... I very much appreciate your your candor and empathy as you tell this story. You know, so this was a 1990, right? The story that you just shared. Yes. When we first met, and this will be my my last question as as we wrap up this first segment. When we first met on the phone a number of months ago, you had shared with me this story, and you had also shared with me some of your experiences after this story, and you had told me about the experience of working uh, for the Dallas Mavericks with your brother. Yes. See, that was a couple of years before your recovery, correct? Yes. That would have been, and uh, when I went to, that was 11 years later, and that, so that would have been uh, six years before I went to recovery. So why don't you share with us, as we wind down this first segment, sh- share with us what the next few years look like leading up to the opportunity to work with your brother and what happened? The next few years look like the ambulance chasing I described, three failed marriages, and basically losing my clients, no longer being able to function as a lawyer. I had no more clients left and I was in danger of being on the street. My brother, I remember seeing him at a health club and it was in, I want to say December of 2000, just before 2001. He asked me how things were going, and I said, not good. And there were other things that went on before that, that uh, where Mark and I had done some work together. He tried to buy the Pittsburgh Penguins, and I was involved with that to some degree. And, uh, but we won't have time to go into everything. And he said he had just purchased the Dallas Mavericks, and he said, you'll come to work for me. I was saved. Mark had come to my rescue. And so he put me in, as his point guy to the construction of the American Airlines Center, of which he owned a half interest, about a half interest, maybe less. And there were these construction meetings in this trailer, and I was sitting in these construction meetings with some of the most important people in Dallas, Tom Hicks, who at the time owned the Stars and had an interest, uh, the mayor and things like that. I was drunk, I was high on cocaine, I was hungover, and he had to pull me out of that, and I failed miserably. What happened? He pulled me out and he had me worked for him for HDNet in an office where he could keep a better eye on me. He loved me and he was trying to help me. But my family, like anything else, 
an HDNet at that time, it's, it, it's now it's Access TV, was, it was the beginnings of his high-definition television network. So he put me in an office down there where uh, they were based, where he could keep an eye on me. And, uh, but love doesn't cure addiction. And so things continue to get worse. I became suicidal in 2005. I became so despondent and so devoid of hope of ever being able to look in the mirror and love who I saw, of ever being loved by a wife, a girlfriend, my mom, who and I at still at that point had a difficult relationship. We don't today. We have a great relationship. And, and, my, and the people I was married to did love me. It was I didn't love myself. And marriages can't stand like that. You know, marriages can't stand together like that when one person just sucks up all the love from someone else and doesn't give it back because they don't know how to love because they don't, they've never loved themselves. So I decided to end my life in the summer of 2005. And it was close, Christina. My brothers came into my house at the urging of a very good friend who did not mind his own business, something I stress all the time when I speak. Do not mind your own business. Step outside your comfort zone. I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand. There was cocaine everywhere. There was Xanax everywhere. They took the weapon. They cleaned up the house. And they took me kicking and screaming to a psychiatric facility. Kicking and screaming. They're trying to save my life. And all I can think about is leave me alone. Not uncommon with addiction. We get down there. And I'm in the attending psychiatrist room in this, in this room in the facility with the nurse and my two brothers. And it dawns on me that they're going to try to have me committed to the extent you can in the state of Texas. I'm a lawyer. I knew what to say. I knew some basics. I'm not a danger to myself. I'm not a danger to my others. And much to the chagrin of my brothers, there was nothing that the doctor could do. So they had to let me go. My brothers were trying to figure out what to do. I am in a very privileged situation. I acknowledge my privilege to the umpteenth degree. I have a billionaire brother. They were making calls right from that facility trying to get me into residential treatment without any regard for insurance. They were going to ship me that day. And I refused to go. I refused to go. So they did what we call the Cuban rehab. And what does that look like? Well, take your car key, stay at home for two weeks, and everything's going to be okay. That's, my brothers were just trying to keep me alive. The only two thoughts I had were, one, no problem, my drug dealer delivers. And now I, I, I did. I had a dealer who delivered who I... In 2006, I was trading championship Dallas Mavericks tickets to for uh, cocaine. <laughs> wow. That's another story in itself. But the other thought was now they know. Now they really know, so I have to distance even further. It wasn't I'm with people who love me. It wasn't I need to get help. It was now I have to get with, stay with the people who understand me, the people who really understand me, the people who really love me people I do cocaine with, the people I drink with, the people who supply my cocaine, the people who know where all the hot night spots are, those are the people who really understand Brian. So you distance, you distance from your brother, you distance from your parents, distance from your nieces and nephews. And that was the near of rock bottom, quote unquote rock bottom, a term I actually hate, but I use so people have some context. Because no, we, the goal should always be to find recovery at the highest possible level, not the lowest possible level. So what was rock bottom for you? I had met a girl while I was out partying in January of 2006, one of my week-long birthday parties. 
that would start with my cocaine and end when it was gone and the money was gone. And I would fly to Vegas. I would fly to this. And uh, we started dating. I was able to wear short-term masks that people suffering from addiction often do. So we look normal out in the real world. We put on these masks of this respectable lawyer, of the successful lawyer, of the caring lawyer, of whatever we needed to do, of the, law- of the loving lawyer, of the loving person, whatever mask we need to put on to achieve whatever response we need to achieve. We're great manipulators. I was. She moved in with me. Easter weekend, 2007, she went away for the weekend. The next thing I know, it's two days later. I had gone out. She's staring down at me in bed. There's cocaine everywhere. There's alcohol bottles. There's Xanax strewn about. She didn't use drugs. She doesn't use drugs. She was a very light drinker. She did not know about any of this. She's trying to figure out if she walked in the right house. I'm trying to figure out what lie I can tell to explain this law and order SVU orgy of evidence that I might not be the person she thought I was, just spewing goofy lie after goofy lie. She's also a lawyer. She wasn't buying any of it. I decided to buy some time by quote unquote running home to mama. Not my biological mama, the psychiatric facility mama. Take me back to the psychiatric facility. You've been in a psychiatric facility? Yes, there are some things about me you don't know. But we'll get to that later. I just need some time to think of some BS that will get me out of this. We're standing in the parking lot of that facility. She's crying, and I'm thinking she's going to go. I'd go. Christina, she stood by me, Amanda. And she's your wife today, right? She is my wife today. We dated for over a decade. Well, I found recovery and rebuilt the trust that I broke. And now we've been married for two and a half years. So relationships won't always survive those things, but they can. But I had to do the work. And I couldn't do it for her. I couldn't do it for my family. I couldn't do it for my dog. I couldn't do it for anyone but me. Because recovery has to withstand divorce. Recovery has to withstand losing a loved one. Recovery has to withstand losing a pet. It has to withstand life. For recovery to withstand life, I had to do it for me. And yes, we are now married. Been married for two and a half years. And so I also thought in that parking lot about my father, who knew about none of it. My father, who was a veteran of the World War II, fought in Okinawa, Battle of Okinawa, a veteran of the Korean War, fixed cars with his two older bro- with his two brothers in the same spot in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, from the end of the Korean War until his older brother passed away in 1999. They, they put convertible roofs on cars and stuff like that, just messed with cars for 40 years. That was, that's what he did. Very middle class very old school. And I thought about something he told Mark, Jeff, and I growing up. And he would joke about it. He, we knew he was being tongue-in-cheek. He'd go, guys, girlfriends may come and go. Well, we hope they don't. Wives may come and go. Well, for me, they had, but we hope they don't. We, have, we hope people have wonderful, long-lasting, lifetime marriages, for that matter. But when push comes to shove, guys, all you have is each other. No matter where you go in life, No matter where your travels take you, you pick up the phone and you call your brother and you tell your brother you love him. My father was the middle of three boys like me. 
He understood the bond of brothers, the love of brothers. This was the gift his parents had given him. It was a gift he passed down to us. And I wasn't ready to lose that gift. And if you want to know how that gift stuck, Christina, and what that gift meant, all these decades later, 1,200 miles from where we grew up in Pittsburgh, Mark, Jeff, and I live walking distance to each other. And until my father passed in July, he lived across the street from me. And I don't mean metaphorically across the street. He lived across the street. Wow. I couldn't lose that. I couldn't lose that. And so I decided that was time. And I also realized there wouldn't be a third trip back to that facility. I'd be dead. And I decided it was time. And that was Easter weekend, 2007. And you've been sober since 2007. I will have 12 years in two days, April 8th. That's an amazing story, Brian. I'm speechless and I'm just, I cannot thank you enough for sharing this story. And it's a story, and, and, and there are all of these amazing stories of recovery around the world. And from lawyers, from law students, and mine is it's one story. And I have some unique facts, how many people have traded championship Maverick tickets for cocaine, right? But, uh, but it's all, when it comes down to it, and we'll talk about this later, because it's something I came to realize when I walked into 12-step. It's all the same, really. Different, different stories. I was lucky that there wasn't terrible, tra- terrible tragedy. I get asked often, what do you regret? I can't say that I regret the journey because the journey got me, here, got me in front of this computer talking recovery with you, right? The journey got me sharing my story. I regret the collateral damage. I do regret the collateral damage, the people I've hurt who had nothing to do with my issues. And I've worked in my, I hope I work every day to make living amends for that. And I've apologized to the ones that I can. As we end our first segment, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners and where can they find you? I'd like to share that my story may seem like, I mean, there are always goofy facts and weird facts and everyone has unique facts. People have been to prison, but it all starts with that first day, whether you're a law student, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a family member, it all starts with that first day of asking someone and opening yourself up to being loved. You can find me at www.briancuban.com, Brian with an I. I'm B Cuban, B C U B A N on Twitter. I can be found on LinkedIn. I can be found on Facebook. I'm very accessible. Well, you and I met on LinkedIn about a year and a half ago. I remember that. That's right. And, And I'm so happy that we did. Me too. And I really look forward to the second part of our conversation. I do as well. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope that you have enjoyed part one of our conversation with Brian Cuban and that you will join us next week as we pick up our conversation. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.